reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 5, beginning at the first verse. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may the words that come from my mouth make sense uh, because they are inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please be seated? Well, throughout the year, we'll be touching base with Matthew's Gospel. Um, and the Sermon on the Mount is where you can clearly see Jesus' priorities, principles, and the image of God that Jesus brings into the world. The rest of Matthew's Gospel can be read in light of what Jesus says and teaches in Matthew 5 through 7. But right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount are the Beatitudes. Beatitude is simply Latin for blessing. If you have a similar sense of humour to mine, this passage may remind you of a particular scene from a Monty Python movie. I think it was blessed are the cheesemakers. Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. There's not too much of that clip that I can actually show in church. <laughs> to edit very, very carefully. <laughs> but as silly as that uh, clip and as that movie is, um, it does highlight one of the reasons that we have chosen the theme this year. Truth for our time, truth for all time. We can often mishear, misinterpret, and misrepresent parts of the Bible. And as a result, develop an understanding of God that has little connection with, with the original intention. In the same way that the manufacturers of dairy products had little to do with the peacemakers that Jesus was highlighting in his Sermon on the Mount. Unless we understand some of the context behind what Jesus is saying, we can easily head off on our own tangent or create God in our image. To uncover the truth for our time and the truth for all time in this powerful and well-known passage, it's really helpful to look behind what Jesus is saying 
where he is saying it and why he is saying these words. In Matthew's gospel, important things happen on mountains. Matthew's gospel was originally directed most likely to a Jewish audience. Throughout Matthew, we see lots of prophecies being fulfilled. I think what I said was okay. (laughs) And many scholars have seen similarities with the way that Matthew projects Jesus and Moses. And so when we see Jesus go up a mountain and begin to teach and start to teach by reeling off a list, a Jewish audience will naturally bring to mind Moses and the Ten Commandments. Maybe not Charlton Heston, but Moses and the Ten Commandments. And Jesus knew that they would associate what he said and where he says it with the law. Saying just a few verses later, do you think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have come come not to abolish, but to fulfill. The Ten Commandments, which became the foundation of Jewish law, and many argue the foundation of our own legal system today, are tough. But as you read through them, they actually seem pretty reasonable. No murder, no stealing, no lying. Not many of us these days have donkeys to covet, let alone neighbours with donkeys. But we can understand the principle. But when we start to read through the Beatitudes, particularly if we take a literal and prescriptive view of them, it seems like an impossible task. It can seem like Jesus wants us and expects us to be poor, sad, meek, hungry, merciful, pure, peacemakers and persecuted. At various times we might be able to tick one or two of those boxes, but all eight, all of the time, is a big ask. How we understand the Beatitudes has a lot to do with how we understand law. In 2020, we generally see law as rules or prescriptive requirements that we need to follow. And looking at the Ten Commandments, it sort of does fit in with that perspective. But to a Jewish person with a strong understanding of the Old Testament living in Jesus' time, law would have a much more holistic meaning and understanding. Law meant divine revelation. Another word for revelation is epiphany. We are in the church's season of epiphany. So we're in a season of divine revelation. So when I say law this morning, We shouldn't think of something prescriptive or rigid. Rather, law was a reflection and still intends to be a reflection of God's desire for God's people. In Israel's history, it's impossible to talk about law without talking about covenant. Covenant is that awesome concept 
of an intimate relationship with God and God's people. Covenant also includes the relationship God's people has with God's creation and the rest of the world. I'm told that the mountains in Galilee aren't big, tall, lofty peaks like Mount Everest, where all you can see when you look out is clouds and nothing else. They're not the place that you go to escape from reality in the rest of the world. But on a clear day on the mountains in Galilee, you would have been able to see a lot of what was happening all around you. You'd see other villages. You'd see trade taking place. You would even see enemies coming. Quite possibly, depending on which mountain uh, this sermon was preached on, if it was by the sea, it was likely that those who were gathered would be able to look out into the distance and see Tiberius being built, a city that was a representation of Roman taxation, oppression and occupation. Jesus teaches this covenantal law from a place where the people gathered could see what was going on around them. We cannot find truth for our time if we remove ourselves completely from the things that are going on around us. We're called to be interpreters of our landscape. Law was seen as a practical manifestation of covenantal relationship. So in terms of the Beatitudes, they're not solely concerned about establishing prescribed requirements. They're more concerned with revealing what is important if someone is in a relationship with God. What is important to God, what is important to that person. The word that continues to be repeated over and over in this passage is the word blessed. If we go back to uh, the original Greek, uh, we find the, the word makirioi is what is translated as blessed. In other translations of English Bibles, we hear happy or fortunate or honourable. But if you've heard a few of my sermons, you'll know that often our English language doesn't fully capture the meaning of the words in their context. The word blessed certainly doesn't mean that a priest like me will suddenly pop out and give you a blessing each time that you're pure in heart or thirst for righteousness, even though that'd be kind of cool and creepy as well. <laughs> but from the way that we find this word used in the passage and throughout classical and biblical Greek, throughout Judaic literature of the time, we can get a sense for what this word blessed, makerioi, means. And it has sort of two arms to meaning. Firstly, religious joy that comes as a result of salvation. The interesting thing about this word, as it's written, is that it doesn't have a present tense. 
meaning that you're not necessarily blessed right here and right now. It has a future tense. But perhaps that blessing is yet to come. So when Jesus says that someone is blessed, it means that they will find their joy in their salvation. Or in other words, they will find joy in the relationship that they have with God. The second way of thinking about this word blessed in its original context is as something to be envied or to look up to. It's to be envied. It's to be poor in spirit. But when you think about this big long list that Jesus gives us, those characteristics and qualities don't immediately scream out either joy or envy. We don't naturally look up to the people who exhibit these traits. We don't always seem to find joy in these things, like being poor in spirit, those who know that the riches of the world are nothing like what God's, God provides, those who mourn, the ones who feel for others, who express their emotion and share others' pain, the meek, those who are humble and gentle and kind, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, people who seek out the truth and seek God not just in the obvious things. The merciful, people who forgive, especially when it's not deserved and show the nature of God's grace. They know that to give is to receive. The pure in heart, those with simple faith, just like a child. And the peacemakers, not the cheesemakers, people who put pride aside and promote reconciliation. And those who are per per persecuted for righteousness' sake, those who stand and suffer, who are faithful even at the expense of their own well-being. Jesus, as he delivers this law, this divine revelation, refuses to make rules for how people are to live by. They've, they've already been made. He knows that for his words to become actions, the people who hear them will have to have absolute trust in one another. So he begins by being descriptive, by laying the foundations of the kingdom, based on imagining what life might be like if it was founded on trust, hope and vulnerability. And who are more vulnerable than the poor, the sad, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure, and the peacemakers and the persecuted? Jesus promises joy even to them. What Jesus presents on the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes is the world turned upside down. In the previous chapter, the disciples uh, following Jesus heard these words, follow me and I will make you fish for people. I wonder what type of people they had in mind. They're going to draw people 
to this new movement, I wonder what they expected. We do know what they found, though. They found the crowds were made up of sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics. They also would have included a whole raft of people who were unhappy with what was happening in their lives, who felt downtrodden by Roman oppression, by poverty, by expectation. We don't hear of powerful people gathered in that group who could overthrow the Roman occupier. We don't hear about academics with eloquent words who could persuade others to their view. We don't hear about rich people who could buy their freedom. We hear about a crowd made up of ordinary, broken people. When Jesus does talk about powerful people, academics with eloquent words, and the rich, he's not as glowing and as encouraging as he is in this passage. The truth of the world that we live in today is that all around us are ordinary people, are broken people. We are a church full of ordinary broken people. They are the ones that Christ comes to build a relationship with, to write his new covenant with people like you and me. Yet in our world, we have an expectation and a temptation that we're only successful if we are powerful, if we have the right words, if we have wealth and influence. But Jesus' Beatitudes are nonsensical to the powerful, the rich and the comfortable. And if we are honest with ourselves and we look at the lifestyles that many of us live, they're nonsensical to us today. Yet Paul reminds us in one of his most uh, well-known passages from Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness. It's a world turned upside down when we think of the world as the coming of the kingdom of God. How can weakness be powerful? How can peacemakers thrive in a world triggered with violence? How can persecution become transformational? The Beatitudes honestly make far more sense to Galilean peasants in the first century, to refugees fleeing violence and to hungry children who have that raw ache of an empty stomach. But those of us who live with more privilege don't experience. Jesus speaks directly to them with these promises, with these blessings. But what does he say to us? 
how can these promises remain true for our time? The Beatitudes are both ideals to be looked up to, but they are also calls to action for us to become poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, and to be peacemakers. And if the situation arises, to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Yet we've got centuries of culture and Christendom and Western privilege that tells us that maybe we don't have to do those things anymore. But God's law is a law of relationship. And these, Jesus says, are the building blocks to relationships both with God and with each other. And we don't have to bring them to life in a self-deprecating way. We're not always going to be live, able to live up to these ideals. We will stumble, we will fail, we will be forgiven so that we can try again. But we should always have in mind what Jesus sets out to his disciples and to us. And what God spoke through the prophet Micah. There are other verses in Micah, um, just by the way, but this is the most well-known one. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. If we take a look at the word humbly, again, in its context, it's probably better translated as to walk an intentional life. To do justice, to love kindness, and walk an intentional life. And if we're asking ourselves what type of an intentional life should we be living, then we just need to look at the Beatitudes. These are the intentions that we're called to live. The truth that we find in this passage, the truth that we can see coming through these words that help us to not only understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, but helps us to live every day as a follower of Jesus, is this. Jesus has an undeniable priority to bless us, to bring joy and life. Jesus comes to bring about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God turns the world upside down. And as followers of Jesus, we are to be about bringing this upside down kingdom And the image of God that Jesus presents to us is one that longs to have a relationship with us, with all of us, who includes even the most marginalised, and who includes us. I pray that as we accept God's blessing, the joy that we experience will radiate from us as we strive to live by Jesus' principles our example will show others 
what is important to God. And as we are welcomed into this amazing, intimate, profound relationship with God, we also will welcome others into relationship with us and show them how much God desires to have a relationship with them as well. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for these words, these ancient, beautiful words. We pray that they might not just be poetic, but they might be incarnational. Bring them to life in a world that seems so dominated by power and ego. Bring them to life in us. Might we be poor in spirit. Might we mourn. Might we be meek. Might we be hunger and thirst for righteousness. Might we be merciful. Might we be pure in heart and peacemakers. Lord, with trepidation, we also pray that we may be persecuted for righteousness' sake. We ask this in Jesus' name.